0: I want to introduce my guest today. She is a Pulitzer Prize-winning author of nonfiction, a historian, um, also a staff writer for The Atlantic, where I read everything she writes. She uh, wrote for many years for The Washington Post, where I also read her. Uh, she worked at The Economist. Uh, she is a senior fellow at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, she has written many books, uh, three in particular about Russia, and a book about Russia and what they did in Ukraine. And everybody wants to ask me, did we know all this was coming and we booked Anne, because she's one of the foremost experts on Russia and Ukraine. No, we did not know. Uh, but I really want to highlight for you her most recent book, and that's where actually we're going to start. Her most recent book is called The Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism, and it scares the shit out of me. So I'm going to start with a quote and then ask you to talk a little bit about Poland. But you wrote, given the right conditions, any society can turn against democracy. Indeed, if history is anything to go by, all societies eventually will. Will you describe Poland and what you experienced there? Uh,
1: so, so first of all, uh, thank you very much. Thanks for the introduction. Um, I, I, we did speak about Russia and Ukraine yesterday, so maybe we'll return to that a little bit in this conversation. We will. I'm, I'm happy to, um, to, to 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 go backwards a little bit in time. Um, that quote, which is a, was a comment about the fragility of democracy, that democracy is not given to us forever, it is not inevitable, um, is the result of um, my experiences. Um, so, um, I, aside from that long list of publications that I wrote for, um, I was in Poland in the late 1980s. Uh, I, I watched the collapse of communism, I covered the collapse of communism all across Europe, and in the Soviet Union, later in the 1990s, I spent a lot of time in Russia, working on books about Russia, um, and I watched people in that region um, begin to construct uh, an alternative form of politics. Um, in Poland, they uh, they they, they, uh, they ended the system of central planning, they brought free markets, um, they brought a democracy, they created a parliamentary system, and Amazingly and miraculously, it worked. And, and they
0: became independent in 1989, is they that They became right?
1: independent from the Soviet Union in, in 1989. I mean, they, 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 they broke their ties. They were always a sovereign country, unlike Ukraine, which was part of the Soviet Union. Poland was a separate country. Um, but they became a, a, a non-communist country, a free country then, um, and they were, I mean, I have to say in retrospect, just stunningly successful. I mean, Poland is an example of a country that genuinely changed itself. Um, it had been a occupied country for several decades, it had suffered terribly during the Second World War, um, and yet it emerged and reconstructed itself and rebuilt itself. Um, and in a, in a sort of very small way, I was part of this positive story. Um, I remained in Poland, I lived there Partly in England, but partly in Poland, all through the 90s and the 2000s. In fact, I have a house there now. Um, I'm married to a Pole, and my husband was, for seven years, the foreign minister of Poland. So I'm stuck with it. You know something the, about Poland. I'm stuck with it. You know, it's a, can <laughs> you tell this story? And what I was moving to is what... So I, I, I then had a, um, the, the, the sort of apotheosis of this moment, this feeling of success, was one that I had in 1999. We had a New Year's Eve party. Um, which I describe in the book, my yeah. book *Twilight of Democracy*, and I've described a couple of times before. Um, which, which to me, in, in retrospect, um, you know, it was a—I mean, it wasn't a fancy party because in 1999 Poland, you couldn't have fancy parties. There were no caterers, you know, nothing like that um but we had a very broad range of guests and they were from England they were from the US they were from Poland um and there was this feeling in the room that we were celebrating you know we were celebrating 10 years of Polish independence 10 years of democracy um although nobody remembers that was actually the night that Boris Yeltsin resigned he'd been uh, president of Russia and you know and that felt like an important transition um i actually got up from the party walked upstairs in my long dress Sat down and wrote a political column, just it took, you know, during the party because that's what one did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then went back to the party, which lasted all night. And I had this feeling of integration, success. You know, my Polish friends and my American friends, we got along. I remember the one kind of bad note of the evening is that the songs that we remembered from college and the songs that the polls remembered from college were different, so there were some conflicts about what music we should dance to. But other than that, it was really, it was, it was a, it felt like a very positive moment. I reflected recently on that party, you know, two decades later, and realized that there was a part of the, some of the people in the room, some of the polls who were in the room, were no longer my friends. Um, and not only were they no longer my friends, I, you know, they would cross the street to avoid talking to me and I'm afraid probably vice versa. Um, and this ex- this experience of division was not personal um, and it was not just me, there were, the, 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 the people at the party have since divided and the divisions are political. And what had happened in the ensuing um, couple of decades was that a part of what was the Polish, I don't know, journalistic, intellectual, um, you know, um, it's, you can't even call it a class, but it was really a group of friends, had soured on democracy, and they had tired of it, and there were a lot of different reasons for it, which we can talk about, and they had begun to support a different kind of politics in Poland, a, a um, you know, we use the word populist, but that's really the wrong word. Um, it was a, a political party, which is now the ruling party, um, which has ambitions to become the only party, so who, who are beginning to set up a kind of one-party state in Poland. So they have attacked the press, they've attacked the funding of the press, um, they've attacked the independent court system, they've tried to eliminate, they've tried to make judges answerable to the state and not to the, not to the Constitution. Um, they've sought to change the rules, you know, having one power legally and democratically, they then sought to change the rules so that they would never lose again. Um, And some of my friends have become supporters of that movement. Um, some of them are propagandists for it.
0: And these are people who believed in democracy. These are not like uneducated people. They are, who are not uneducated people. The they, are not,
1: they are not people who are, in some sense, victims of the system. They are not poor. They are not rural. They are not outcasts. Um, these are people who are beneficiaries of Poland's uh, transformation since 1989. Is it, is it craven,
0: like, just lust for power? Or is it just some belief that the other side would just screw everything up? Or, like, what drives it?
1: There, there are different motives. I think the most profound and important motive is 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 what I would call disappointment. And so, either it's in some cases personal disappointment, like I thought that I would have a bigger role in post-communist Poland, or my career hasn't gone the way I thought it would, and so I'm I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna root for the other side. In some cases, it was disappointment. You know, so this is democracy. You know, this is very complex, and the good good guy, you know, the the people who I think should be in charge aren't winning, and there are all these dirty capitalists who make a lot of money, and I don't. You know, there's a there's a there's a feeling that the society isn't what we want it to be. I mean, we have this phenomenon in America too of people hating the way their country is now and wishing it was something different, and therefore seeking a different, a completely different political alternative. So it's usually about that. Um, there. There's a there's a it's what it's a the french have a word you know ressentiment you know it's resentment against the way things are against the way things have gone and 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 a resentment that's so profound and so deep that they want to destroy the system so we
0: have a deeply entrenched belief in the united states that there are two parties it's a two-party system Uh, we might be on the blue team or the red team or the yankees or the uh, red sox um I want you to talk a little bit about a one-party system and I think you spoke about this with respect to Lenin and uh, the Bolshevik party you wrote was both anti-meritocratic and anti-competitive. The only test for getting ahead was loyalty, conformity to party rules. Because I think you said that Lenin, it was the first system that was a true single party governing system in which loyalty was the mechanism for getting ahead. Maybe describe a little bit of that.
1: It's, it's, I mean, Lenin almost confuses the issue, although yes, I did okay. write that. Um, because then it makes you think of communism. Actually, what was important about Leninism was, was exactly this. It was the creation of a single party as a, as a mechanism for ruling. So, uh, you know, and again, the test for whatever, for being promoted, for being, uh, getting a government job, for, beco- you know, for being the head of a company, wasn't are you good at it? You know, did you pass a, a, a competitive exam? The question was, are you sufficiently loyal to the leader? And what is happening in Poland is something like that. So the government is seeking to, instead of promoting diplomats because they speak lots of languages, they promote people who are loyal to them. Um, and so the result is we have incompetent diplomats. Um, instead, of, instead of seeking to encourage free market competition so that you know, the best companies you know, um, you know, win, win the game and, and, and become the most important distributors of goods, they seek to pick they're kind of oligarchs, you know, people who, when they, get, they throw government support behind particular companies with the hope that they'll create loyal businesses who will then support their projects and help them stay in power. And this is a political, this is not, not I mean, it's not radically different from what Putin has done in Russia. It's not unlike what you have in, in Turkey. It's not unlike what you have in Hungary. Um, this is a, this is a, it's, it's a political system that isn't, instead of being based on meritocracy and competition, is based on loyalty uh, who, you know, and, and, the, and the insurance that the, you know, the, the, the single ruling party remains in power. So
0: I want to uh, grab that and segue to something that highly influenced me, and I'm sure I won't quote it the way you think about it, but maybe spur you to talk about it. You wrote an article that I read in 2018 called A Warning from Europe, The Worst is Yet to Come. And that's kind of a scary title. Uh Sorry. (laughs) And one of the things that I was grappling with from 2015 on was the lies. And Donald Trump telling lies about his audience size and people not willing to call bullshit on the lies. And the lies just kept coming. And in a way, people would repeat his lies and people that you wouldn't expect to lie. And one of the things, again, I'm going to paraphrase and feel free to disagree, but like what I took away from what you were seeing in Europe was the lie is a test of party loyalty. Yes. If you're willing to lie publicly, then I know you're on my team And if you're willing to lie publicly, in some ways you're burning bridges and you can't go back to normalcy. So this idea uh, that we've all grown up with is work hard, go to a good school, get ahead, meritocratic, you can achieve more. You may, you may not, but that's the system. The people who succeed in the single-party systems are the people who did not do that, but they are loyal to the worst behaviors. Is that
1: kind of roughly? So I, I think that's absolutely, that's exactly correct. Um, and in some ways, the more egregious the lie that the dictator tells, the more useful it is to him or the autocrat. And so yes, if you remember the very, very beginning of the Trump administration, when Trump said, you know, tried to change the photographs of the, his inauguration to say that there were more people than there had been. Um, that was a test you know those who went along with the test if you remember his press spokesman at the time did go along with it um, some some of the other propagandists went along with it that was a test if you're really loyal to me then you will you will contradict what you can see with your eyes and even though you can see that what I'm saying isn't true you will agree with it and then I know you're on my team and this is the method of Hugo Chavez this is a message of Putin right now Putin is putting out Absolutely false versions of what's happening in the war in Ukraine. He claims it's a little police action in the East. He's not telling the Russians that he's bombarding Kiev with cluster bombs. Um, and people in Russia who say the truth, who say that who are are right now being arrested as we speak. Um, uh, Yesterday, two women and and three or four children were putting out, had little tiny signs that said no war and were putting flowers in front of the Ukrainian embassy in Moscow. All of them were arrested, including the children, um, and taken away because it is not permitted to say the truth. And and that means that you're disloyal to the dictator, you're disloyal to the system, um, and you have to be expelled. And I
0: think like the extreme version of that that we're seeing that this really can happen in the United States is January 6th because it was so obvious you could watch the news, you could see what happened, the law and order party or whatever we want to call it, uh, policemen were killed, people marched on the Capitol and yet after that I thought everything changed and just shockingly it's like no you have to repeat the lie. The election, you have Bill Barr saying, no, there was no, you know, tampering with the election. Joe Biden won it fairly. And yet a substantial portion of the Republican party now believes it because they've been told to lie by so many people. First of all, is that your assessment of what's happening in the U.S.? And how do we reverse that trend that we don't become Poland or Hungary?
1: Uh, so, yes, you're right. I mean, that it's one of the most disturbing things that happen, particularly because it's about elections. And the creation of doubt in the electoral system, you know, um, means that what they are seeking to do is to create doubt about democracy itself. Because, of course, if we don't have a reliable electoral system, then we're not really a democracy. And that gives them the right to seek to overthrow it or to change the rules or to change the system. Um, and that is exactly why it's so dangerous and why the... Um, you know the, the many laws being passed seeking to you know with the, the, all, the and the, the the problem with the um, with the, with the laws on voting and so on that are being passed in a number of states right now isn't so much the content of the laws. It's that they seek to perpetuate that assumption that there was something wrong with the 2020 election and there's something wrong with our electoral system. Um, and therefore people have doubted it. And of course, the danger down the road is that we either that we have once again a legitimately elected president who much of the country doesn't accept as legitimate or that the this time around in 2024, um, the the uh, that that part of the Republican Party which no longer likes or admires American democracy and modern America seeks to change the result of the election, and we do have an illegitimate president, and then we have a the real potential for violence.
0: And if I'm not mistaken, I think you would have defined yourself as a McCain Republican, as a Thatcherite, as a center right uh, person. I, so, I, yep. Yes,
1: I certainly come from that. I mean, yeah. that was my, I was you know anti communist. You know, w- you know would have. Voted for Reagan if I was old enough to vote then, or maybe I did vote for him. <laughs> um, I, I I would have, I did vote Republican. I you know would have supported uh, McCain. I did I did fall away from the America from the Republican Party a little bit earlier than most. More I was very put off by Sarah Palin. Um, if, if, if you may remember, it was the, it was the <laughs> I can see a lot. Russia from my back porch thing was too much for me. She
0: messed with your territory. That's
1: right. Uh, but but yes, I, I come from that. And um, and many of my friends are Republicans. And and, in, and of course, actually, I know even well some who have chosen a kind of Trumpist path. Um, and that that division that I began speaking about among friends, people not speaking to you. I see it in Washington. I see it in the U.S. just as powerfully as I see it in in poland and i'm sure many i i've I found that almost any audience that i speak to i find people who said yes there's friend x that i don't speak to anymore or my uncle who i can't talk to um that that deep division and of course it's that polarization that is so dangerous because it's when we begin to see each other not as legitimate political rivals or people who all have the good of america at heart but as actual enemies you know if that if those people have power then the country's finished you know then that's dangerous and that that is what lead has led in other countries um to civil war and to violence
0: the center right was a large and important part of our system in the united states much like the center left where are all these people? Like, it doesn't feel like... Like, Chris Christie, he seems like he has... I know he normalized Trump, and we could look back in history and say... He says he's running for president. So, but he's at least willing to speak out against the system. But, like, where are all these people, and what can they do?
1: So, actually, I mean, historically, the center-right, and there's a wonderful book about this, um, uh, you know, on the... Uh, the center right's role in German politics. The center right has often been the body in in politics that that keeps the, the sort of the far right from winning. So, and it's not just in our history, but in the history of other countries. Um, and and the same is true across Europe today. I spend a lot of time talking to center-right leaders in Europe uh, just for that reason. Um, there, is a, there is a, certainly, there's an intellectual center-right in America. Um, they, they've created groups like Republicans for Accountability. There are recognizable members of Congress and, and the Senate who should be part of it. I mean, disappointingly, the only Two people in the House of Representatives who are really brave enough to speak up about this and this subject are Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. Um, and Adam Kinzinger is not running for re-election, although Liz Cheney is. Um, and she's an, she's an unlikely hero for many Democrats who probably object to what she thinks about, about many things. But the you know, it's, you know, watch what she does, because she is, she is going to be someone who I think is going to try and talk her party away from the abyss. Um, there also, I should say, there are many, many people in the Senate um, who also um, are sick of Trump, dislike him, hate that part of the party. They've been much more cowardly about speaking out. Um, partly, I think, it's not even so much that they're afraid of voters, they're afraid of their own media, they're afraid of Fox News, they're afraid of Tucker Carlson. So speaking
0: of Tucker, Asshole. Um, If you could, what the hell is going on with Hungary? And like, what is his fascination with Hungary? What is the news networks' fascination with Hungary?
1: So the the fascination with Hungary, which is which is a country that's actually gone a little bit farther than Poland in establishing a one party state, um, the fascination with Hungary is a fascination with autocracy, and uh, you, you know, our founders, the people who wrote the American Constitution knew from the beginning that democracy is fragile, that there are alternatives that people will want, that people fall victim to demagoguery. Um, And they wrote the Constitution with checks and balances for that reason. We've been so lucky, we've been so successful as a nation, economically and, and politically and otherwise, that we have forgotten that these challenges to democracy were always there. Um, and, 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 and the fascination with autocracy, and particular the fascination with the idea that you could be the ruler of a state and you could just ban things, you know. You can ban gender studies departments at universities. That's one of the things that Orban has done. And that's something that Tucker Carlson would like to be able to do. Um, You could just ban all the people that you don't like. You could make them shut up. You could use the the power of the state to silence them. Um, That's a, the fascination with that idea, the appeal of that idea is very strong. You know, we didn't disinvent it just because America was successful for so long. And that idea remains, you know, really the greatest future challenge to the nature of our country. Um, One more thing about Tucker Carlson, if you listen to him speak, and I unfortunately have quite a bit, um, as well as um, Laura Ingraham, who's a, one of his Fox News colleagues, whom I did used to know. She's, she's in my book. Um, one of the things that you pick up about them is their dislike of modern America. They didn't like diversity. They didn't like the kind of country that we've become. You know? And their fascination with autocracy is, is a fascination with being able to overthrow all of it and change it radically and dramatically. It's a kind of radicalism. In, like the Bolsheviks were right
0: I'm, I'm sure they're both genuinely terrible people, but isn't, isn't some of it just opportunism as well? Like, I, I, Laura seems like the greatest marketer of, like, terribleness.
1: So, 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 so yeah, there's, you know, it's very hard to pick apart the strands in human brains, but there is a combination of opportunism, you know, money. They make money doing this. Um, genuine disappointment, hatred of America, resentment of, you know, um, somebody I know told me that Laura is very angry that Dartmouth, where she went, never recognizes her as a prominent alumnus and so on. So there's a, um, there's often a, you know, resentment, you know, the establishment doesn't recognize me, I'm not getting the... The, you know, the recognition that I deserve. And all of those things can be part of, what, part of what motivates that kind of demagogue.
0: You do write a lot about resentment and it's something that's kind of stuck with me and I think about it as Donald Trump and the buildup of resentment and I think that's something we need to understand. Yeah, I mean, do- Donald
1: Trump was a vector for resentment. You know, yeah. his whole, you know, and this is one of the reasons he keeps talking about the 2020 election. You know, he cannot accept loss. So I want
0: to talk quickly about entrepreneurship. By the way, if you're interested in Russia and Ukraine, I think you've agreed, and I hope this is true, to allow us to publish your interview yesterday. So we're going to put on YouTube Ann's wonderful interview she did yesterday with Jeff Berman. I did not ask about Russia and Ukraine, but um, she's graciously offered for us to be able to put that up. So we will put that on YouTube, I hope, next week. But I want to talk about entrepreneurship. You wrote something, uh, I may be paraphrasing, but... You wrote, the end game is no secret. The Polish ruling party dislikes existing entrepreneurs because it hopes to create its own oligarchs, businessmen who are dependent on government favors. Like, talk a little bit about that and like the passing out of favors and the lack of entrepreneurism.
1: So entrepreneurship, creativity, you know, all self-starters, motivation, all of that is a threat to an autocrat. You know, autocrats dream about control, and that includes control over business and over the economy to make sure that nobody, um, that no company, no leader, um, develops something new that they can't control. I mean, you can see this very, very strongly in Putin's Russia. You know, all of the oligarchs at some point have to pay. I mean, it's said to be there's actual a cash sum that they pay to the leader in order to keep him in power. But they certainly have to pay homage to him. They cannot contradict him. Um, and and the, and you know, if you see how Russian technology has has developed, um, the Russian forms of social media, you know, of is is maybe the most famous. Are all very much patrolled and coordinated um, by the state, I mean, as it happens, I do believe that some regulation of social media is possible. We can do it in a democratic way that 's another discussion to have um, another time. but what what dictators seek is something more than that. Um, they want um, you know, any form of independent thought or independent action is a challenge to them because they can 't control it so and that's why that 's why putin that 's why orban that 's why they seek to crack down on civil society they, in, Whatever independent organizations, independent movements, independent companies—that's a potential threat to their power because it creates alternatives and alternative ways for for people to think. And I, the, 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 I one please. more thing: the best the best thing that any of us can do to challenge these um, this way of thinking is to be creative, to find new ways of thinking, to keep imagining different futures. Because what the autocrat wants to do is is to make the future go in the way he wants it to go.
0: And that was going to be my question: What can we do about it? But There are people amongst us. So I think if we end up with an autocratic system and moving in that direction, it's terrible for everybody in this room. Uh, Terrible for entrepreneurism, for venture capital, for funding, for everything. There are opportunists amongst us. And it may be someone like Peter Thiel. Cozying up to the president and even after the terribleness of what we saw on January 6th, still endorsing that wing of the party because there are opportunities for people who pay homage to the king.
1: So I think you all probably know Peter Thiel better than me, so I won't I won't I won't comment on him. But yes, there will be there there will be and there are opportunists or people who will seek who don't value um, the democratic nature of our system, or who see opportunities in an alternative i mean that 's what we 've seen happen in other countries
0: so I just want to ask for one thing is there is there any optimism we could end on is there
1: a- so, so i yes, I think there is look the the optimism is in in getting rid of in your mind the concept of inevitability. You know, we all thought for a long time that democracy is somehow inevitable, certainly since the collapse of communism. You know, that we don't have to do anything in particular. You know, it's like like the water that comes out of the tap. You don't think about where it comes from. You don't worry about it. You know, politics is something that politicians do, and they can go and do it over in their corner, and the rest of us can just go off and do what we do. We can make money, we can do companies, we can paint paintings, whatever it is. And it's kind of none of our business. actually. That isn't how the world works. Nothing is inevitable, nothing lasts forever. Um, but, but, you know, just as democracy is not inevitable, dictatorship is not inevitable either. You know, what happens tomorrow depends on what we do today. So the actions of all of us, you know, the what, what how, you, how you join a local party, how you participate in elections, how you, you know, how you act in your local community. It doesn't have to be a national level, or even state level. What do you do locally? Um, what you do helps helps affect what happens tomorrow, so all of us in fact democracy you have to think of it much more like water in a well, you know actually, sometimes you have to go and get it and then you have to carry it back to the house and then you have to boil it and make it drinkable. That's really what democracy is like. It requires participation um, from all of us and particularly from really talented and intelligent people like those in this room.
0: And what I would love to see in Washington thinking more about how to leverage the resources in this room. Yesterday, Ron Conway told a story about Airbnb opening up in Poland to refugees coming in and housing 100,000 of the 500,000 people that are becoming refugees. We talked a little bit about Elon Elon Musk trying to get satellite communication so they can get internet into Ukraine. Like everyone should think about what infrastructure you have available to you or in your networks that can be used as a force of good. But please help me thank Anne Applebaum for coming from the East Coast to visit us. Thank you.
1: Appreciate it.